So when I talked to Pastor John and we had this thing of let's do a guy's focus, I forgot that I'm the guy that can't grow a beard. I mean, I'm 44 years old, and I think by this point I could be manlier than I am. And then I started thinking, you know, what, is, what am I going to do getting in front of this church with the high expectations for manliness? I mean, what do I need to do to match up for that? You know, the amazing thing that I want to present to you is that we are living in a world that presses in identity in a really challenging way. What does it mean to be a man after God's heart? Um, the reality as I read through the Bible is that we've got David as a fierce warrior who's also embracing Jonathan in a way that would creep most of us out. How does it mean to be a warrior after God and pursue, pursue his heart and also be in relationship to be able to write poetry and also go out into battle? What does it mean to be a man of God? And what I want to tell you is that nowadays most of us are living with kind of a an uncomfortableness when it comes to being a guy. Have you noticed that most of the TV characters for men um, aren't that noble? Most of the, you know, comedies, the dad's kind of a buffoon, kind of silly and mom's wise, and so the dad is just kind of put up with and doing silly stuff, breaking things, and then the kids kind of teach dad a lesson, and, and he's kind of the, the joke in, in the story. And so it's hard to know what does it mean to be a man after God? What does it mean to pursue after him? And what I want to tell you is that God has something in store for us as guys that's really, really powerful. This is a message for me. This is a message for you. And some of the ladies that are listening in, um, it's probably a message for you too because God wants to do something bigger in us than we ever thought was possible. How many of you are relieved that the Legos didn't get knocked over? <laughs> you know, I was ready to give for them to get knocked over because I probably will knock them over before the day is over. Um, there's a verse that I love. It's found in John 10.10. 10. It says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. How many of you woke up this morning knowing exactly what you're going to work on all day long? Some of you, I'm going to go to church, and then I'm going to eat, and then I'm going to have a food-induced coma of a nap, <laughs> wake up from that, feel a little guilt, and so eat to kind of subdue that, <laughs> and then get on with the day so I can have popcorn and fruit and watch TV or movies. You know, that's kind of your agenda for the day. Does that sound horrible? I'm sorry. Some of you are thinking, that sounds like a perfect Sabbath. <laughs> the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy when Satan, I don't know if he wakes up or sleeps, but he knows exactly what he's filling his day with. Steal, kill, and destroy. Some of you are wondering what this Lego thing is all about. This is eight blocks of ten. So if you can imagine this, this is, and I'll hold it up for the people all the way in the back, this is a statistical lifetime represented in Lego blocks, and I have to confess, some of you are sitting there saying, I'm living in the bonus years. <laughs> so some of you are over the top. Some of you are getting close to the top. It's a statistical lifetime, not yours. Um, but what it represents is that there's a block for every year. And at Project Patch, when we're working with teens, a lot of our teens have a really hard time telling their story or even figuring out their story. Have you ever been in that point where your present is so loud it's hard to remember? It's hard to look back because it's painful, and it's hard to look forward because it looks pretty daunting. 
And so we've got kids in our care that are 14, 15 years old that are putting stuff into their bodies that is going to ruin their future. Slicing up their arms, causing scars that will last a lifetime. Um, we have kids that are hypersexual, opportunistically sexual. So getting in relationships, giving away a piece of themselves any chance they get. We have kids that are dropping out of school at 14, 15 years old. What kind of future do you get when you drop out of school at 14, 15 years old? Pretty hard one, don't you? But here's the thing that we ask a really simple question. Why would a kid blow up their future? Why would a kid that's sitting here three blocks from the red blow up all of this ahead of them? There's a powerful word called hopelessness. When I think everything in the future is going to be as bad as the past, why get up? Why try? And so when we look at this model of Satan comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. What is he trying to steal? When you're looking at a 13, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, and you're talking about what they've endured in life, some of these kids were abandoned, hurt at a really young age. As we tell stories, sometimes there's kids, there's good stories of pets that they had, houses that they lived in. Some of these kids, even as third and four-year-olds, some of their memories are of a place in the house they could hide. A place that they could go and maybe kind of hear that dad and mom are fighting, but, but it, it softens the sound a little bit. There's houses that they'd go to for neighbors. There's places they'd escape to. They remember watching mom being thrown against the wall. They remember being exposed to stuff. My story involves about seven years old um, seeing pornography for the first time. Little kid right down here. And why does this stuff happen? And, and you look at that verse and you say, it's because Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He knows that if we can go through a lot of pain, 13, 14, 15 years old, if he can have a seven-year-old confused already sexually, what is he going to have for a lifetime? You know, I often ask teens this really annoying question. I ask them, um, how likely is it that you're going to meet this girl or boy and that you're going to lose your mind over them? You know, your heart's going to beat a little bit more. You're not going to be able to talk as clearly as you'd like to talk. You know what I'm talking about, right? You ask this person out on a date. Um, you pursue their heart. You win their heart. You become engaged. You become married. And you are together till death puts you asunder, whatever asunder means. <laughs> How many of you think that's likely in your future? I asked teens this question, and these are people that might not have even dated yet. And the response I get from Christian kids, non-Christian kids, is there's a few kids that will raise their hand boldly. There's some that will just kind of stare at me, which teens do anyway. <laughs> and then there's a lot that go, I just don't know if that's in my future. I just don't know if I'm going to ever reach that point where someone's got my heart and that I can trust them and that I can be completely vulnerable and known with this person and they love me and they stick with me through the thick and thin until um, we're old people <laughs> without teeth holding hands together. Why is it that teens don't believe that's in their future? Any idea? A lot of times they look around, right? And there's people they admire that haven't been able to do it, right? They turn on the TV and there's stories of people leaving. They look at the statistics. Did you know that most kids are told the statistics, same one that you guys are, that if you get married, you have what percentage chance of making it? 50% chance. Did you know that that's not true? For your very first marriage in a Christ-ordained marriage, 
you have about a 70% chance of being married till death do you part. Kind of interesting, isn't it? The problem is, is that people that divorce end up divorcing multiple times, and that gets into the statistics, and then suddenly people are saying, oh, I'm not going to make it. So first marriages actually have a fairly high statistical chance that you're going to make it. Second marriages, that drops significantly. And so a teen sitting here listening saying 50-50 chance, I don't know if I can risk that. I don't know if I can risk my heart with that, and so they hold back. And that's because Satan, before they've even gotten there, has taken this concept of being known, being loved, being connected, and he's saying, I'm going to rob you of that. So we've got kids at 13, 14 years old that are addicted to things that are into compulsive behaviors or living zombie lives. We've got adult guys that are walking around with their heads down, and I'm one of them, connected to a device more than the people around them. I talk to, to um, teens all the time about video game addiction, and you know what I find out in a lot of cases? They got into it because that's a way they could connect with their dad. Think about that. I need to become addicted so I can connect with my dad who's addicted. Can you feel that pain of that? Is that Satan is taking lives and he's robbing them. If you take the last of that verse, it says Jesus has come that they might have what? life and have it, what, abundantly, have it to the full. I love how it says it in the message version, have the life you only dreamed of. But have you noticed that most of us guys have stopped dreaming? Remember the old prayer, if I should die before I wake? We should be praying the opposite prayer, if I should wake before I die. Seriously, there are people that are pumping blood that are not alive anymore. Going through the motions of life without the abundance that God has promised because we're at some point that we're saying, you know, I've tried to follow this. I've tried to be alive. I've tried to live a life of impact. I've tried to live this life of of God being involved with it. I've tried, I've tried, but you know what? I failed and I failed. I've got regrets that stack up. I've got these reminders constantly of where I've gone. I've got these thoughts that cloud my mind. When I close my eyes, my failures come to me. My appetite seems to rule me more than my heart for God. Every time I want to speak up for God, there's a voice that reminds me that maybe you shouldn't be talking because if people only knew. There's sons that are struggling with pornography and their dads are not saying a peep because their dads have struggled or continue to struggle with pornography. And so their sons are going into deeper, deeper destruction. There's daughters that are struggling with pornography and they have no one to turn to because they don't know who to talk to. There was a mom that talked to me a couple weeks ago. She said um, their nine-year-old, they sensed this silence in the house and their nine-year-old daughter. And they just kind of, Parents, if you feel that silence in your house, that is a good warning to do something. But they felt the silence, and both her and her husband felt it. They knew something was going on. They didn't say anything. Eventually, the mom went looking for the daughter because of something else and found her on the top of the bunk with an iPad looking at sexual images. Nine years old. This had been the third time that she was looking at him, and she said, Mom, I didn't mean to, but I can't stop. And the mom had a courageous talk with her, and then the, 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 
daughter said, please don't tell dad. (laughs) Please don't tell dad. And she said, you know, I won't tell him right now, but I think dad can really help you with this. Eventually, dad and daughter had a talk, and dad was able to share how God had been convicting him on thought life, on how to take his attention away from some of these things, the victory that God had given him in pornography, and he was able to share that with his daughter. And the daughter said this amazing thing. She said, I'm so glad I have a dad that understands that it's really, really hard, but it's possible. That's nine years old. And so here's what I'm saying is that our kids are growing up in a world of steal, kill, and destroy. Us as dads and adults and moms even are in this world in which we feel robbed, we feel inadequate, and God is calling us to speak into abundance, to speak into abundance. Scare you a little bit? (laughs) It does me. It does me because it's much easier to live a life of a zombie than it is a life that God calls us after. You know, there's an amazing verse that I want us to really spend our time studying about. It's Romans 12, chapter 2. There's power in these words. Romans 12, chapter 2. I mean, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you do this, then you can really start understanding what the world of God is all about, what his will is about. You notice that it uses this word pattern of this world. This is the official Webster definition, the regular and repeated way in which something's done. Pretty basic, right? How many of you are pattern people? I remember a couple years ago we were at, um, at Alcatraz. Has anyone been to Alcatraz and done the audio tour? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? On the audio tour, people have these little headsets, and they walk, and they listen to the thing, and the thing tells them what to do. And so as they walk along, it's funny because people become robots. They're walking along, listening to the tour, and they go, And then the next person along is listening to the exact same part of the audio tour, and they're doing the exact same thing. There's a pattern to it, right? And this world has a pattern, and what I want to say is that the pattern really shows itself in two ways, especially when it comes to thinking. And this is with teens, this is with adults. The pattern of this world for our brains really is, I'm going to do what feels good, pleasure, right? And I'm going to avoid what is painful, what doesn't feel good. So nearly any decision that we're making, and this is what I love about politics, is that people are struggling with politics because do I do what I want to do or do I try to, and and they're confused by the decision because that's the world that we live in. Is this going to be good? So am I going to be drawn toward the good or is this something that I'm avoiding the bad? Constantly in that, our brains war over these two things. Am I chasing pleasure? Am I avoiding pain? What's crazy about the world that we're living in more and more and more is that those pleasure and pain are actually being drawn into this aki combination. All this shades of gray type stuff, especially when it comes to some of the sexuality that's going on, you notice that pain and fear and all that is actually being mushed together into some sort of really destructive, strange combination. And so when we look at patterns of this world, it really has to do with this strangeness of how do I feel better and how do I avoid what hurts me. And what I want to tell you is that, is that our brains, God designed us to have complete brain joy. 
to live out of the wisdom that comes from using our entire brains, that comes from this freedom that lives from our entire brain. Let me kind of show you as our brains grow from back to forward, right? So when you look at, at little babies, they're not reciting poetry, they're learning how to walk, right? They've got a brain stem, so take your hand, Imagine this base part where your wrist is. That's the brainstem. All the nerves are going up to that point, right? And what's interesting is that all these nerves are going on, are balanced. I'm able to walk and talk. If you gave me gum, I could probably chew it loudly and walk and talk. And so you've got all this stuff that we can do, but could you always do that? I mean, if we've got babies, um, at four months, what do they learn how to do for the first time? turn over. <laughs> turn over. They didn't know how to do that beforehand. Um, when they see their foot for the first time, what do they do with their foot? It's a snack. <laughs> you know, they're putting that thing in their mouth because that's what their experience is, is that stuff goes in the mouth. That's the basics. They don't even know this concept of walking. And so eventually they learn how to walk and they can do it really slowly. But can they do multiple things? Can they skip? Can they run? It takes all their concentration just to walk. And our brainstem is all about motion. It's all about that quick reaction. So if something hurts, do we even identify what it's hurting or where it's hurting? I remember when I was 15 years old, I was playing flag football and I snapped my wrist. It made a really loud snapping sound and it hurt really bad, but I had no idea what was hurting. I'm jumping up and down and my wrist is doing this. <laughs> but I knew something was wrong because my brainstem is flooding suddenly with all this emotion, right? Have you ever noticed that you can't really tell the difference between heat and cold sometimes? Like if I took um, something that's icy and held it up to you, you'd actually almost think fire at first. It's hot, and then your brain processes a little bit more. So you've got all this stuff going on at our base layer, our ability to move, our ability to be able to, to do things. And then you've got this layer that I call the, you know, the, I don't call it, it's the limbic system, it's the middle brain part. This is the emotion, this is the relationships. Have you ever wondered why teens are so into relationships? It's because their brain is developing from back to front and at that part of their brain is in full development, full gear. So how I relate to other people, how I connect to other people is super important. That's that point of your brain that's all about emotions, memories, have you ever noticed, and, and Mike was talking to the early teens today, that, that you can, from our memories, sometimes we react to things that aren't even a threat, but our brain tells us it's a threat, and so suddenly you, you, you push away from it. Have you ever had someone that triggers you, reminds you of someone else, and so you kind of push them away really quick um, before you even get a chance to know them? Why? It's because this middle part of our brain is really, really active really, really active. And it's really not that smart sometimes. And then you got that frontal lobe. This is the part for us guys that tends to be about 27, 28 years old when it gets fully developed. I got married at 22. <laughs> so let's do the math there. Before my frontal lobe, which is your logic part of your brain, is fully developed, I had gone through college, <laughs> gotten married, and was establishing my career before my brain was even fully developed. You know why I could do that? Because God gave me a wise woman that kept me kind of, kind of focused. But here's the funny thing is our whole brain, is it there? 
It just takes longer to engage the frontal lobe. That's the only difference. For us as adults, usually for us guys, by the time we're adults, we can spend about three seconds to get out of that <gasps> point to actually start getting reasonable. For young men out there, um, give yourselves maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds. If there's a girl involved, maybe a minute or two <laughs> and a cold shower. Um, just because your brain isn't isn't rushing that quick. Just like a baby's brain isn't using its legs, its legs eventually work, but it just takes more energy. It takes more time. And so why I share all this information is because as our world defines the pattern of this world, remember, you've got this part of your brain that's just like hyper aware of danger, right? And so we have a lot of fear in our lives, and fear tends to be the pattern that rules a lot of us. One of the fears that's interesting is that when you start looking at what happens when fears come up, fight, flight, freeze, right? You've heard that before? I remember in sixth grade, I was running to first base after I had hit the ball poorly. I think it might have gone to to the shortstop, but it probably just dribbled to the pitcher. (laughs) And I'm running to first base because I was fast. I couldn't hit, but I was fast. And suddenly the ball's racing toward the first base cat the first baseman whose his name is Brent Van Epperen does he sound like a villain <laughs> Brent Van Epperen and so Brent stretched out waiting for the ball and the ball never came to him instead it hit me in the back of the head knocked me down um, I wasn't wearing a helmet because we didn't wear helmets in the 80s. <laughs> and so I'm laying on the ground um, there's two reactions that took place at that point um, I'm feeling really stupid and embarrassed, mostly because I didn't hit the ball that well, and then I'm feeling hurt. Brent just watched me get knocked down by the ball, and he starts laughing. Guess what I did? I got up and hit him as hard as I could in the face. (laughs) Why did I do that? Because at that moment of fear and all this sort of stuff, it just seemed like the best choice to make. It seemed like the wisest thing to do is is wham. And most of us get to that point that if we had time, we'd say, that's a dumb idea. That's a dumb idea, but it's interesting that so many times we get to that realization past the regrets. I don't know about you guys as dads, but I've said some of the most horrible things to my kids. I've responded to my wife in anger in ways that I regret because it just comes out so fast and so easy sometimes. So fast and so easy. The other thing that happens is that have you seen a squirrel? Let's say you're driving down the road and there's a squirrel in front of you. What do squirrels do? Back and forth, back and forth, right? It's almost to freedom. What does it do? Turn around. (laughs) Go back into traffic until what? Splap. (laughs) Poor squirrel's gotten smushed. Why? Is it because of lack of activity or lack of a plan? No, it's just it gets frantic frantic in that moment. And so our brains do that to us sometimes, is that we've got so much going on that suddenly we get frantic. Um, Teens talk to us sometimes about them just trying to get their homework done. If they've got a test coming on, there's so much to study, what do they do? Just go nuts and and kind of do a piece of everything. Um, Just kind of go here, go here, do this, do that. Um, There's people that when they get struggling with a project, they'll go down and clean their shop. Any of you guys that way, clean the car, um, do a bunch of productive activity that makes you feel like you're doing something, but at the end of the day, you still got your problem? Yeah, that's a common thing because I feel like I'm in control when I'm doing something, but in the meantime, my problems just keep growing. The other way that our brains work is that we get that deer. Have you seen a deer um, as you drive up toward it at night? Gunk, 
maybe if I don't move, <laughs> this will go away. I remember my first strong experience with that was, was I was probably eight years old, cup camp at, at summer camp. Um, there was a little boy in our, in our cabin, and this is amazing, eight years old, so you're talking 30-some years ago. This, this boy was in our cabin, and um, he was being teased in some really painful ways. He was a chubby kid, and he was an awkward kid. And I remember sitting there saying, I need to defend this kid. I need to say something. I need to put a stop to this. And guess what I did? I didn't say anything. How is it that one of those freeze moments 30-some years later still comes to mind? In that moment that I could have acted powerfully, I didn't. I didn't. And so it's into this world that God's saying that I want to have you not following this pattern in which you're being frantic or fighting or freezing. I want to take that world and I want to transform that world. The other world that we have is this chasing of pleasure. I don't know about you guys, but this is a temptation that I constantly face. If I had this, then I would be fine. You know, one of the problems that our country has is that we put happiness on the other side of achievement. Do you know what I'm talking about? When I get this, then I'm going to take a break and rest. When I get that next job, when I get this project done, then I'll spend time with my family. When I accomplish this, then I will feel better. But have you noticed that it's, it's, a, unre- it's, a, it's a race that doesn't end? The carrot keeps going further and further out in front, and you just keep feeling more and more tired. And so we're chasing success, we're chasing wealth, chasing power. This is the destructiveness of sexuality apart from what God ordained. If I could feel this way, then I'll feel better. You know, one of the things that a lot of us guys don't talk about is is our heartfelt desire to be completely known and completely loved. Most of us guys don't talk about that. When we get married, our dream is that our wife is going to know us completely and love us regardless of that. What do we discover pretty quickly? No, she wants to change us. <laughs> you know, she'd like, she'd like the upgraded version of us. And so we share, you know, kind of, you know, we might even share as a test thing, and we discover that even in marriage, it's not that safe sometimes. We share vulnerably with a friend and we discover that, you know, maybe it's easier if I don't. And what's interesting about sexuality is the sexuality is this exposure and instead of coming with known and, and connection, it becomes a disconnection. It becomes an isolation. You know, that's one of the things that I've seen over and over with kids and I've seen it with adults is that we get involved with these things that further isolate us from people. I enjoy video games, but you know what I struggle with video games is that the result in a lot of children and adults' lives is that it leads them away from relationship and community. It puts them in a place of just being by yourself with that device. I love social media. Social media has a tendency to isolate people rather than connect people over time. Pornography is a thing that leads men especially, but women including, into worlds of I'm by myself and I'm self-sufficient. It's a thing that devalues relationship and connection. And so we're in this world in which we're saying, I'm chasing pleasure because I think it'll give me this, but instead we find ourselves in a completely lonely world with relationships being broken. And what I want to tell you this morning is the pattern of this world is broken. 
the pattern of this world is broken, when we look at what the world is teaching us and telling us to be, if we follow that pattern, it will lead us into a place that is self-destructive and relationship-destructive. Why? Because of this pattern of this world is set by an agenda to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's into that world that Jesus speaks these words that I will transform. I will transform. How does um, transformation happen? We talked about that, that concept of a car becoming a robot a little bit in the children's story with Transformers. You know what I love about Transformers? In, when I was growing up, it was a cartoon. <laughs> Nowadays, it's a movie. Times change, but it's the idea that I'm going to transform and become. How many of you have ever prayed to God, change me and make it quick? And then you hear these stories about people getting up in church and saying, I had this habit and it was taken away, never a hunger for it ever. And you're saying, that's sure not me. And it actually makes you feel more of a freak because that's not you. You know what I find interesting is that if we look at the Bible's version of transformation, it really is subtle and it takes time. The kingdom of God is what God is wanting in our lives. Think about the kingdom of God. What is a kingdom? I define it as as far as I have power and authority. Where I don't have power and I don't have authority, my kingdom ends. I have a pretty small kingdom. I have a pretty small kingdom. But when I look at God's kingdom, where is it in my life? What parts does he have complete authority and power and where do I have reserved my, my right for power and authority. You know, traditionally, people as Christians um, say, I'm going to put God first. Have you heard, seen these lists? I'm going to put God first, and then I'm going to put my family next, and then I'm going to put this next, and then someplace in here, he starts getting mushy. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Do I put my kids, and which kid do I put above the other? <laughs> you know, where are we going to end on this thing? And what I want to tell you is that God is not flattered by that at all. It does not flatter. It does not mean anything to God because God says, I want to be the center of it all. I want to be the center of your ambition. I want to be in the heart of your work. I want to be in the middle of your sexuality. I want to be every part of your family because I am a God of kingdom making. I want to have power and authority in the darkest places of your life, in the corners. And so when you read through things like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, it starts small and it grows. Something that we look at and say, how can that become a blessing will grow into a blessing. When you read through the Bible, it talks about yeast being put into a loaf of bread, and it starts small and it expands. And I say, praise God, because there's days that it feels like my brain is not helping me, and I want God to expand into those dark corners, and he's willing to do that, but it's not always a quick transformation. We have a God that says that I want to be more of a kingdom God, and that process is what I have in mind. He leads us to lands that are actually inhabited. Think about that. Children of Israel dangling their toes in the Jordan River. They're there the second time. As they look across, what do they see in the promised land? Giants and thick walls surrounded by blessing. Giants and thick walls. And so you sit there at that point of the desert and and, and you're saying, I want to go there, but God, can you clear all that stuff out first? And he says, I want you to step into the water. I want you to step into the water. 
And so I don't know where you're at this morning. My guess is that some of us are stuck in that back part of our brain when it comes to God, that we're still filled with fear, that the noise of our lives, our fears, and all that is so much that it's hard for us to actually step out into trust. That fear is showing up in our lives in lots of destructive ways. Some of us are probably midbrain, where our memories and our emotions have caused us to just be in this continual state of worry. What if I do this? What if I choose wrong? What if I, what if I get exposed? What if people really knew me? And so we're at that point of just kind of playing it safe with worry. Some of us are at that frontal lobe in which we're all logic, but really painful and hurtful to the people around us. Where we can say all the right scriptural things, but it hasn't transformed us. And God is saying, wherever your brain is, I am ready to do a transformative work. Let me read some verses that I think will encourage you. If you're feeling fear this morning about enemies, if you're feeling fear about what is going to conquer you, I want you to look at this verse right here. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the the present or the future, nor any power, neither the height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're at that moment right now of just feeling fear, what is this stuff going to do to us? I want to tell you that nothing can separate you from God. Nothing. Not your past, not your stupidity, not your impulses, not what turns you on, not what gets you angry, not what causes you fear. None of this can separate you from the love of God. There's some of you that are kind of at that point of wondering about your state. You feel like if God really knew me, he would reject me. We've got kids at our youth ranch that are fantastic kids, but have you ever met those people that you say, don't touch the stove because it's hot? And what do they do? They touch the stove. Why? because they believe that they are exceptional. You know, that's all the other losers that get burned. And so if you tell certain kids, don't do drugs because it'll fry your brain, what do they do? Only losers get addicted to meth. I'm gonna be fine. And they get into it. When you tell these same kids that touch the fire and do the drugs and do whatever destructive things that Jesus Christ has died for all sins, every single sin, he's washed it away with his blood, he'll bring you forgiveness and joy like you can't believe, you know what they do? They believe they are the exception. That's for everyone else but me. And what I want to tell you is that from the very start, this is Adam. Adam, when he was in that first sin, he ran and hid from God, and he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I feel fear because if you really knew, if God really knew, if other people know who I was, then I would be, what? Rejected. And what I want to tell you is whatever state you're in, even if you're in active rebellion, even if you're in active rebellion, addiction right now. No matter what you've seen, no matter what you do, you don't need to hide. That's the last thing you need to do. It might be the scariest thing you have to do, but I want to tell you that there is great power in stepping out from behind. It might be the scariest thing you do, but that's where healing begins. Awesome stuff. 1 John 4.8 really talks about the final fear, the fear that says, um, what if God rejects me? 1 John, verses 4, 
Verse 8, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has, not, has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Can you imagine standing in front of God? A lot of us fear this judgment, right? God is perfect love. He will drive out that fear. And what I find interesting is that a lot of us feel like we need to get rid of the fear before we come to God. I'm saying get into God's pure love. For some of you that are struggling the most with fear right now, I'm saying don't concentrate on that fear. Concentrate on loving other people sacrificially. If you feel like your life is spinning out of control, yes, you need to get the professional help, but find ways to serve people in love. As a family, if you feel like you're being stretched apart, Take family time and serve other families in love. This is actually a key from our youth ranch is getting our kids involved in acts of service that go beyond them. There is power in love to do what? Drive out fear. Drive out fear. To do, but the problem is most of us actually just kind of read the Bible and say, oh, that's nice, and don't actually do what it says. It says, think about these things. It doesn't say think about these words. It says, think about things that are noble. And the problem is, is that most of us just think we need to think about spiritual things that are, and that's not bad to think about spiritual things that are noble and pure, but it says think about things. And there's times when you're under attack, I want to tell you that you have to have this prepared ahead of time. And so this is just kind of a a way that we do it with kids, and and I recommend for adults, take every single one of those words out of Philippians 4.8 that you need to define, pick the ones that connect with you the most, and define it personally. What does true look like for you? What does noble look like for you? Um, and so for me, I've got um, my definition. The next thing is, is the most reachable thing for me when I'm feeling under attack, this is me personally, is scenes from movies, books I've read, TV shows, something that my brain can access from a memory that's pretty quick. And so I've got some, some things from the movie Braveheart that are noble to me. I've got things from Lord of the Rings. I've got comedy stuff in there. I've got all sorts of books and movies stuff in there. And you might say, Chuck, that's not right. The Bible says I can think about things, <laughs> and those are things, and it helps me. The next thing is I've got stories from my personal history of when people were bold and strong. I've got biographies that I've read, and I've got stories from those things. I've got stories from people in my life that have defended me. And those are things that I can turn to and remember. There's nature things that I can remember. Let me give you an example for purity. When I need to think about purity, I think about snowboarding. How many of you are snowboarders here? Can you imagine taking the lift to the top of the mountain and you see completely untracked powder in front of you? White, clear, you're making your own tracks. It's quiet, it's smooth, the train is perfect. You get down, your heart is beating, your legs are burning, you get up on the lift to do it again. You know that there's times that my brain is under attack and that's all I can think about and it brings me relief. It brings me relief. It gets me into a place that my brain starts engaging again. And you know what I say? Is praise God that I've had snowboarding experiences that can help me at that moment. There's spiritual examples, but what I want to say is that unless we do this work, we don't have much. And so I don't know where you are today, but I want to tell you that you are at that point most likely where you're saying, God, I want to go into this new land. I want to go into this land that you promised for me but I'm scared to death. 
I have a fear of the giants that are in my life, and I see really thick obstacles getting in the way. I've tried before. I just don't know if I want to do it. And what I want to tell you is that if your toes are in the water right now and there's a Jordan River in front of you, God says, I can't do it is a great place to start. How many of you have been to Australia enough that you can pretend an Australian accent with me? Okay, maybe it'll be contagious. I want you to say in your very best Australian accent, I can't do it. Again, please. Say it again. You know what's interesting is that some of you are saying, I conduit. Not I can do it, but suddenly you become a conduit. A conduit. And you know what a conduit is? It's taking something from the source and taking it to where it needs to be. And what I want to tell you is that you can't do it, and that's a great place to start. I can't transform my mind. I can't get rid of these things. But we have a God that says, you can't do it. That's a great place to start because I want to be a conduit. I want to use your life as a conduit to break down these things, to lead you into a land of plenty. When those people cross that river... They marched around cities and walls fell. They went in to fight armies and the armies collapsed on themselves. And I'm not saying that's going to be your experience, but I can tell you for sure that God is in the process of transforming your mind. How do I know that? He's done it for me. He has taken what happened to me as a seven-year-old and he's brought me back to a point of joy and relationship where I can know that I can be vulnerable and be loved, that I can make mistakes and get up again, that I can have worries and God will take those worries and he'll transform them. I know because God is able and he's powerful. I've seen with teen after teen after teen that were living hopeless lives that they are now living lives of impact. And I don't know where you are today, but I want to tell you that God is able and willing if you're willing to say, I can't do it, and I want you to start transforming. Is that your will? You know, we have a chance right now to just spend a few minutes in reflection, um, listening to some music, and then I'll come and, and pray for you. But I invite you to really enter into this and walk out of this room um, willing to live again, live in a land of abundance. So, Father, we stand in this holy moment knowing that you're calling us out from this place, renewed, restored. Father, you know our needs at this moment. For some of it's wisdom, for some of it's bravery, for some of it's um, maybe the right person in our life that can guide us to the next space. Father, you know us, you created us, and you don't abandon us, but you walk with us. And so we just praise you for that. And Father, we want to walk not in our own strength, but in your power, because you are able to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. And to you be all the glory and honor, the praise for what you accomplish in our lives and our relationships. Even so, Lord Jesus, come soon. Come now. In your name, amen.